films suck. And today we're going to talk about the Oscars. Yeah, we're basically going to uh, get into what a shit show it is, uh, typically every year, but even more so this year, perhaps. That's right. Um, I know very little about this year contenders, which I'm sort of almost proud of because most <laughs> of them were pretty horrible. But Eileen um, really <laughs> had a tough job of watching most of the contenders. And so she will probably tell us <laughs> all about it. Um, so I guess we should probably start with just talking about the ceremony a little bit. Because again, I didn't watch the entire ceremony, just some outtakes um, of different um, like speeches on YouTube, mm -hmm. uh, but you suffered through throughout what entire oh, I, I four sat, hours of it. I sat through. I, I don't know if it went for four. It might have even been a little under four for once. But it was, it was just so hideously gray, nearly boring that I and I had forgotten this. I haven't sat through and just with my eyes on the screen since I was I don't know a kid, <laughs> and my family would sometimes watch it. So it was a huge endurance test and really so loathsome <laughs> that I think it, that is the is almost an interesting thing to do to yourself is to just once make you make yourself watch the whole thing because it's such a nauseating parade of, of really everything that's horrible about our culture like in a nutshell everything about you know our, our total reverence for you know wealth and fame our desperate desire to be kind of high culture and high toned and to have, you know, America's quote unquote royalty, we're always trying to you know, name something America's royalty. And and this comes the closest and people will very proudly tell you that they'll either say this is, you know, if you're in film, they'll either say and you say you didn't watch it. They'll say, what do you mean? This is our Super Bowl. There's a lot of you know comparisons to this is the only great you know, American cultural spectacle that unites the country. And that seems that seems entirely appropriate. I, I'm sorry to say. It's just ghastly. God, it's funny. You know, um, again, from little that I watched this year um, uh, of Oscars, I noticed that how similar the whole crowd looks to remember the media elites in the Hunger Games, which I actually Hunger Games for the first oh, right. time I watched only a few <laughs> right. months ago. I thought that that movie surprisingly got the, the sort of gaudy media elite really well. And yeah. the Oscars look just <laughs> like this. I, I don't know if you can comment on this, but clearly Hollywood knows itself very well because that part in Hunger Games got really well and the part of the poor villagers, it's, I think, pretty <laughs> atrocious. <laughs> right. And they know the garish, overly done, yes, attempt at fashion by, I forget the name of the, the character that's played by Elizabeth Banks. Um, oh, that's right. Um, yeah, she's, she's the ultimate and always wearing just the most insane clothing. And of course, that's one of the few real pleasures of the Academy Awards is to watch the essentially the what's kind of the fashion show part of it. because Not because... Usually, almost anyone wears anything gorgeous. Here, these people have, they literally have all the money in the world and they can't find like a nice dress. It's amazing. And so this year, pink was the, was the favorite color. There's usually a color that dominates because they all frantically imitate each other. Um, Why is um, it pink this year? Is it God, the Me Too thing? Knows. Maybe, like, maybe. Like a pussy hat? Because pussy, yeah. pussy hat is pink and everyone yeah. wore them. And it was supposed to be yet again another year of the woman. That There's been like 87 <laughs> year of the woman um, um, events uh, in recent years. But yeah, it could very well be that some decision 
along the Me Too lines led to just the most, either it was Pepto-Bismol pink or this really nasty, <laughs> almost fuchsia, and you're just, they're just nauseating <laughs> color schemes. I mean, uh, so so that seemed highly appropriate, this kind of, you know, anti-vomiting medicine color <laughs> is being worn on the backs of all of these, you know, insane people, and you're like, come on. I mean, admittedly, they don't Which pay for ironic because it's vomit inducing as yeah, a I show mean, right <laughs> very much and, um but they don't even have to pay for their own clothes usually because of course the designers will you know create some ten thousand dollar creation um and just for the sheer publicity you know throw it on the back of 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 some hollywood star just to have it viewed and identified by everybody but nevertheless it's like ten thousand twenty thousand thirty these insane dresses that are um and tuxes that are worth you know you know some people that's all they make in a year um but they just have you know god awful they're all anxious to have a lot of taste they all have personal stylists now it's the years when like Cher would show up in some outrageous deliberately outrageous you know headdress and (laughs) um a few strips of cloth on her entire body and just laugh at it and say you know that one great year when she said well as you can tell i received the academy's instructions on how to dress properly for the awards it was one of the most beautiful moments in the academy Awards. this kind of humor defiance of this stupid um, ceremony but but normally they're desperately trying hard to look great and they just god the god awful things you see they look like you know tied up parachutes or, <laughs> or rain slickers or you know Rachel Weiss had a little red what looked like a little red plastic caps rain like a, a rain preventative cap set over her shoulders I mean they're just insane insane clothes so that's one of the more fun things is just to like mock um their desperate desire to look um wealthy and fashionable and their and their failure every single year i didn't see all the dresses again but the stage design i couldn't like avert my eyes did did you notice it looks like i'm looking at it again it's just some kind of weird golden kind of shell did, yeah, did you I notice what's on the stage? The shape of the shell was very bizarre. Yeah, I kept it's trying very to Cronenberg. Con- <laughs> it's some kind of like organ, but but quite not quite very not quite. crooked. It was a disturbing <laughs> thing that made you start thinking, yeah. what what <laughs> organic? <laughs> very shape organic. Is that supposed yeah. to represent? I don't know. I know exactly. If it's if it's uh, like hair of a woman, I mean, you know what it is. But it, <laughs> but it is very. It's like dead ringers, kind of like. Yeah, element. it doesn't belong There's, in in Oscars or where it does. I don't know. It's very golden, so very, at least very it golden. looks rich. <laughs> yeah, looks rich. Exactly. Everything's got to be gilded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, know, it, and, and of course, famously this year, it was all, it, it was the, the whole show. The wheels are really coming off the cart because as they just don't know how to do this kind of show anymore because it was very much based on the old time variety show format that was very popular up through say I don't know nineteen sixty and then died out mm-hmm. and that itself was based on vaudeville which died out i don't know in the 30s early 30s something like that um and so it, it wasn't making a lot of sense anyway this whole way the show worked and people complained every single year the show was this monstrosity of four hours of just fragmented bullshit going on and knowing you couldn't get your hand your 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 mind around what the hell it was supposed to be um but it always had a host and you know there was, there was a lot of publicity around the fact that you know Kevin Hart 
um, the comedian was supposed to um, host. And then, I don't know, they dug up old tweets uh, or, or something. They dug up some old statements of his, even it was even pre-tweet that were homophobic, supposedly, or something. And he's like, look, I've apologized for those 9,000 times. Um, but they were going to make him apologize again. He refused. So, so he was out and they just decided ultimately not to have a host for the first time ever. There was always an MC for the Oscars. Again, a very kind of old time, um, figure, um, the kind of, kind of, uh, Toastmaster, Roastmaster, MC figure that was very popular in older forms of showbiz, but they always had one. Bob Hope had been it for many, many years. Um, Johnny Carson was it for a number of years. But at any rate, it, you know, it was they were struggling more and more to get somebody who could host the Oscars who wouldn't be too mean, but would be funny, uh, would be able to do this kind of magic trick of seeming to pull all the disparate uh, agenda items of the show together and finally they just said the hell with it and the weird thing was watching it it didn't seem to matter I mean I would forget for long periods of time uh, it was cruelly boring the whole show but I just found like yeah at this point let's just admit the thing the thing does not work <laughs> the thing doesn't work in any way it may may be time to think about just like just not and then the, then the next you know, fiasco was they decided not to have on the live telecast the awarding of the cinematography and editing um, awards. And of course, there was a huge outcry because if you don't have cinematography and editing, you don't have film. It's <laughs> these are the essential essentials, the essential um, aspects of the medium that define the medium. So it was a huge <laughs> screaming outcry. But what I liked about that, of course, they reinstated it at the last minute. Um, in terror that they defended everybody, but they'd also exposed like how hollow the whole, <laughs> yeah. you know, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences um, endeavor to showcase quality um, filmmaking. How much bullshit that is! There's no sense of that really <laughs> animating this damn thing at all. <laughs> it is very exposing if if they want to put the people who matter the most, but yet are never seen by the public. So it, it means they don't matter. Well, exactly. If you if you're you really to show them. exactly if you're really watching this show honestly and considering mm -hmm. what people really want, they want to see stars. Mm -hmm. um, that, it's a star show. Um, they want a contest, you know, and winners and all that kind of thing. But they, they you know, they want to see the clothes and they want to see all, yeah, the spectacle. But they do not care at all. If you took, I think, the majority of the audience, it was only cinephile types, you know, geeks who actually care about the medium. You know, idiots like me were like, what? You can't do that. But, you know, if you're considering the, the spectacle of the show, honestly, yeah, nobody gives a shit. That's not why anyone watches. Yeah. Well, OK, I guess let's talk about the the winners and did you expect that oh, to God. happen in terms of <laughs> oh and before oh before that i actually have questions that might sound idiotic but mm. i honestly don't know so okay. to me it was very surprising that foreign film or a foreign director could mm -hmm. and a few of them actually could participate into in the best directing best director nomination so is that normal for because the Polish film director participated, like Pavel Pawlikowski and also uh, Alfonso Coron, who did win. Right. Because so, I thought best directors for just only the American categories, as well it, as the best picture. But best is picture was... Yeah. How, yeah. It was, it's confusing because Roma actually won the night before at the uh, American Independent... Uh, whatever, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the Independent Spirit Awards for film. Um, uh, uh, Alfonso Coron won... 
and it got Roma got best picture, but I'm sorry, mm-hmm. best international film. So it was separated mm-hmm. off as a kind of quote unquote foreign film yeah. category. And he even said in his speech, I'm, I'm, I, th- I think the day is coming pretty soon where this category will disappear and we'll just have best film and it won't matter where it comes from. And well, I think <laughs> and he's <that's> dreaming. <laughs> well, yeah, it should be fine, but I'd be surprised if the whole um, American bias would, would disappear. That would be surprising. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, that shows a kind of level of confusion about the whole foreign film category and how how much you want to separate that it's good that would be almost impossible to enforce in the united states because the united states has always poached talent from around the world to such a, including directors mm-hmm. to such an insane extent that you couldn't you couldn't wall out <laughs> directors from other countries from the best director category um because they're making america you know, they're making tons of American films. Roma is an interesting sure, case sure. because Roma was in just straight ahead best picture, not best foreign film running in no, it was best the Academy Award. as well. Oh, it was nominated for best. Yeah, yeah, both. So, so how does that, that work? I guess that's that surprising. That makes no sense, but it does no. suggest that, that, that it was probably some sort of co-production. There was probably American money in the film, mm-hmm. even though it was shot okay. in Mexico. I'm assuming. That's my guess. But I mean, yeah, the, that whole thing, how to determine the status of a film. Does it have to be in the language of of a particular nation that it's supposedly representing? How much of, of the funding has to be from that country? It's all that's kind of parsing, all that nonsense that goes into it. So I think that's why Roma yeah. turned out to be this completely confusing, like, what is it? How, how are we? How He was up for every award possible. Yeah, it was confusing. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And also... Okay, Rama, it's, uh, it was on Netflix very quickly after mm-hmm. the theatrical run, and I couldn't go past like half an hour. I mean, well, I, it, I probably should my, have tried better, but yeah. Yeah, to my shame, that was that was one I was really supposed to see. That and, and I, not that because I wanted to so much, but because everyone mm-hmm. said you have to see it. It's a really serious piece of filmmaking, blah, blah, blah. And that's, of course, probably why I kept resisting. <laughs> but I was also very fervently told you have to see it in the theater because it's it's really so gorgeous. You're not going to get it on, on the TV yeah. screen, blah, blah, blah. And again, this is all just like, oh, kill me. So it's probably very good but it just filled me with you know reluctance shall we say but whereas can you ever forgive me i was really dying to see i don't know what my problem is i really meant to see that and i was glad that it was being nominated for a bunch of stuff because it looked looked terrific um yeah so i i know what you mean the, the struggle as soon as it's identified as an important film that's up for gonna uh, get i've gone through years literally though not so recently because i've been writing more uh writing reviews more where i i, I had almost seen nothing <laughs> and i had to like some people would be shaming me and saying you've got to watch them they're all available to watch again um yeah so i, I also did not see I have not yet seen Roma, but again, everyone says you have yeah. to see it big to get anything out of it at all. So, yeah, well, I tried watching it on a what we have like a projector. At least it's not a TV, but it didn't help. I, I mean, was very much I guess afraid yeah. of the noble ser- the noble the noble servant thing. You know, the, that is uh, that is just that. that that is exactly that. And in the okay, obviously the noble servant thing can be a glorious thing to do potentially, potentially. documentary <laughs> documentary or narrative of whatever form but it's how it's weirdly presented as this cinematic achievement as as well as uh, some kind of humanitarian yeah uh, humanistic achievement and yet it's like old as the world no it's it's there's something oh yeah yeah you can certainly go way back right (laughs) (laughs) about about the setup unless it was some kind of really interesting way of looking at it and honestly 
I know I only watched half an hour, <laughs> but it didn't seem like there's any kind of original view other than the rich, uh, the rich Latin American person who used to live and been taken care of by, yeah. like, by servants I, and he, probably his family and his dad and probably his granddad, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden he sort of has this realization that she's a person too and probably even like more motherly than his mother. That's kind of the more or less the premise. Right. Uh, I mean, I know. have read an article that says it is actually interrogating that that issue that she's mm-hmm. this kind of you know that there's that there's racism in Mexico obviously duh <laughs> um but this whole I read a whole piece on how people don't really realize that it's trying to in, to expose this that the, um you know of course she's considered an, uh, an underclass citizen whose fate hardly matters while she's also holding this fractured family um together and blah 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 but you're right I still feel like I've I've kind of seen that one um but that's the Academy Awards for you there are such typical categories of of nominated and winning films that, that seem to recur over and over. You know, what's the what's the what's the biopic that elevates some sort of beloved figure? Well, Bohemian Rhapsody with Freddie Mercury is this year's, but there's there's almost always one and it almost always has a great you know, a great chance at winning, you know, Jamie Foxx as Ray Charles, almost always. It's a great best actor Oscar um, opportunity. Uh, Sean Penn as Harvey Milk. Uh, Who else? Um, As Queen Victoria. Who the hell played Queen? Oh, Helen Mirren as Queen Victoria. God help us that she's a beloved figure. She's horrifying. But, um, but, you know, viewers love her. Um, so that one is almost always a kind of category of the the Academy Awards that you're going to see, the admiring biopic. Um, there's usually some, you know, outlandish, huge, you know, visual spectacle of some sort, whether it's a kind of Titanic thing or a greatest show on earth from back in the 50s, or there's almost always something that shows the big state of the art. This is what we can do um, <laughs> in cinema right now. There's almost always um, kind of what social drama slash white guilt films um, <laughs> um the oh, green TV. book yeah which of course is the green book win which is indeed from that one i i refused to see outright it wasn't even a matter of oops didn't get didn't get to that one it was no fucking way on that one oh and from what i've read i've been reading details of it it's even worse than you one assumes that it's you know it's all about the raising of the consciousness of the white of the white dude <laughs> who's you know um, driving around this um, this this black artist, this musician. Um, but I've been I've been reading that it's, it goes even further. There's a scene where the 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 the, the black musician is at play, you know plays at a very high you know kind of classically trained level, and it turns out he knows nothing of real black culture in the South. So the white guy does, and the white guy teaches him all about you know popular black music. Uh, he t- has to explain to him who Aretha Franklin is. Has to teach him about fried chicken. And I'm just like, no, no, no. But this this long piece I was reading says, nope, that's all in there. <laughs> so of course oh, yeah. it won Best Picture. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So there were in the, the hilarious after show reading was all about Spike Lee absolutely flipping out when Green, when Green Book won over Black Cl- his film Black Klansman, which was also up for the award and did he you went, watch that one i had i did watch that one yeah 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 how is it um 
Ah, it's tricky. When you first watch it, you're so wowed because it's about a, it's based on an apparently true story about a guy, Ron Stallworth, who's a cop, black first black cop in the super racist um, um, town of Colorado Springs in the 70s. And in order to get out of his low level job um, and to make it, he basically um, decides to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan, which is wild. And how can he do that? Well, he can only do it through his voice talking to someone on the phone and they send a white cop in played by Adam Driver um, to represent him when they, there has to be a face-to-face meeting. And apparently this really did happen to some extent, but you know, as Boots Riley, the director of Sorry to Bother You, who came, he came out shortly after the film opened, unfortunately shortly after I wrote my review as well, <laughs> to say, you know, the actual truth of Ron Stallworth is has been really glossed over here. He actually, instead of one night infiltrating um, a kind of event where Stokely Carmichael, um, a.k.a. Uh, Kwame Ture, was speaking um, uh, in an event fostered by the Black Student Union at, I don't know, the, the, the local college, um, he infiltrated that event on behalf of the cops to get information on the Black Power Movement. Well, in fact, um, you know, Ron Stallworth was working with Cointel Pro, was co- cooperating with the the FBI, as well as the police force in infiltrating and undermining the black power movement for years. It went on and he's a cop. And it's a, it's a film that's essentially, you know, a celebration of this figure. And uh, there's all these scenes of cop triumphal cop hugging that we're supposed to apparently find heartwarming. It's a really shocker of a film when you think of it in those terms. So that makes the story of, of Spike Lee flipping out, really really interesting and the longer story is he, he totally flips out he tries to get out of the theater he storms out they stop him these you know security type goons stop him at the door make him go back to his seat and he's just raging because way back in what was it i think it's 1990 driving miss daisy <laughs> in which a, a a black chauffeur drives a white woman who's a racist but has her consciousness raised one over Spike Lee's do the right thing and his great his great one liner was every time someone drives somebody I lose. <laughs> But his consolation prize is that Barbara Streisand's favorite film this year, of all people, um, was Black Klansmen. And she actually went to the Academy Awards and said, I want to introduce Black Klansmen. So this was this big moment where she <laughs> she's she goes out there in a sequin black beret. And all you can think of is yeah, I watched that one, yeah. well, <laughs> Huey Newton, anyone black power? those black berets that were so fabulous that they wore she's she's wearing one and she's doing all this praise and she says well of course you know i'm a brooklyn girl myself and she gets a big shout out from spike lee and afterwards they went to one of the after parties at the governor's ball and they sat together with him kissing her hand repeatedly according to the the la times and them sipping champagne together and her holding his oscar and all this bullshit goes on in the clubby world of once you're rich and famous you know you're all part of the same club now and you've walled out the hoi polloi so that that was a very you know funny story that kind of has a sickening turn at the end yeah it, it, i have to say like i watched again a separately uh on youtube for a speech mm-hmm. and not like announcing the award yeah. and i don't know it sounded 
like a parody if you like step out for a second oh yeah out of the seriousness of this event <laughs> i mean it was completely funny something about like exposing truth oh yeah and how truth it is, is what we really need time. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. and then know. there was an interesting moment like when she said the truth in these times especially something important and then the audience kind of like started applauding mm -hmm. because and she had to stop because it was clearly you know the whole anti-trump <laughs> hysteria and like some kind of fake news thing right exactly clearly, yeah. and they were all over that yeah. you know starting to applaud mm -hmm. you know they, there's all yeah. these knee-jerk lines where they'll automatically applaud but of course the irony is the truth that we really need and you know in the movie a lot of that truth is very much uh <laughs> Again, glossed over, cut out, not referred to. It makes me just wonder why Spike Lee was interested in this, because from reading Boots Riley tweets from, mm -hmm. I mean, a while back, a yeah. few months back, it doesn't really make sense in terms of his it's so strange. Yeah, no, and yeah. Boots Riley was like, of all the films you're going to pick, why you're going to you have a it? hero yeah. cop? Why would you do? Why? And it is, Spike Lee baffled, he's baffled me for ages it's like go back and watch your own film of spike of, of malcolm x i mean it's like you are all over the map man when it comes to yeah. any kind of political stance he he just really has battled i'm not a huge fan i gotta admit he, he just i don't get that guy <laughs> yeah i don't get it i mean he did give a pretty did you watch his speech um receiving the uh, screenwriting award oh i did he yes. read it from the piece of paper which seemed pretty heartfelt he seemed so nervous but mm -hmm. again it's just it seems to be, I don't know what his stance is outside of just sort of black legacy. Yeah, I, I don't and know. I, don't I mean, know. he's and an odd guy. I mean, I, I first sort of got leery of him way, way back when he did Jungle Fever. It's one of his earliest mm -hmm. films about a mis mixed race relationship. And he was just giving interviews saying that mixed race relationships are terrible and no black <laughs> people should ever be involved in them. And he said, what do you get out of that? You just get a bunch of mixed nuts. And I'm just like, <laughs> you know, man, <laughs> this, this is sort of a problem but, as it stands to take the world so from then on i've always been a little like i don't know about this dude so yeah Whoa, he, weirds okay. me. he weirds me out in a big way i'm team boots riley <laughs> yeah me too me too boots riley is amazing but i have to say also well not to offend it i mean spike lee looked like like a freak like his whole <laughs> attire was this he really belonged to the world of hunger games Oh, yeah, that was another outfit. Yeah, yeah, the outfit was just ridiculous. Yeah. No, purple is, you know, Prince can, uh -huh. could really carry that shit off. But Spike Lee just looks like, yeah, somebody's totally insane uncle or the person you edge away from at the bus stop. Yeah, he really has that quality of, of, a, of a kind of unpleasant <laughs> nuttiness. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's a, there was a lot of that. If you notice, there were a lot of just nutter, nutter outfits there. And that shows how, you know how edgy you are or something that you go to the Oscars in non-traditional wear, uh, which is also very, very tiresome. Um, yeah. You know, not you well, have to turn out in the in the Savoy. What is it? What is what is it? A Savile Row, you know, suit our talks. But it just seems like, yeah, it's tiresome because it's such a it's such a hollow gesture toward, you know, I have a stand in the world because it 
doesn't seem like much of anyone does. I mean, it was great to hop over to the Indie Spirits Award. There was a really great moment when Boots Riley won Best First Feature and he and he got up there and he said, you know, all night we've been hearing about, oh, isn't this great? There's so much more diversity and Me Too and blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know what no one ever talks about? And yet it's going on out in the streets right now, but it never finds its way into films. Class struggle. And you and you could have heard a pin drop. There's suddenly no, you know, obligatory round no of applause for any of that. And then he's talking about what's going on in Venezuela. And it was just fabulous. And you could just tell people just didn't know what to do because it wasn't the knee-jerk yeah. usual shit that they all pandered to, to each other with. So it was a beautiful moment. Yeah, it looked good. I mean, it's really surprising how like the only true <laughs> activist like infiltrated Hollywood in a fairly yeah. organic, organic way. Mm-hmm. And got weird. shut out of the Academy Awards, you know, entirely. Yeah, which is horrible. <laughs> well, speaking of the Academy Award, I was mm-hmm. truly surprised that the, uh, like, Olivia Colman did get the best I actress. Mean, was that shocked. was the only heartwarming. <laughs> it really was a heartwarming moment because, you know, he got nominated, which was a, a kind of amazing enough, though you did wonder if, some, if a lot of the Academy voters who were, you know, tons of them were just totally clueless, barely watched the films. If you if you yeah. know any of them, they're constantly constantly just passing off their screeners to other people and saying, yeah, yeah. my kids tell me what to vote on and blah, blah. <laughs> really, I, I met some people who were shocking how little they, they gave a damn. Um, uh, but you know, the amazing, I th- think some of people probably just saw the, you know, the kind of trappings, the costumes and sets of one of these royal worshipping films and just thought, oh, terrific. That'll be terrific. <laughs> because because otherwise it's hard to account for. It's such the type of film yeah. that doesn't get doesn't get nominated, doesn't get awards. It's a black comedy um, of tremendous uh, insight and much like Death of Stalin, which got shut out of absolutely everything and was eligible because it didn't play until early 2018 in the United States. So it mm-hmm. was eligible and it was considered, I guess, for best score. Um, and di- But ultimately didn't, didn't make the cut, didn't get the nomination. So it didn't get anything. And Death of Stalin is, ah, I would vote. One of the best, if not the best, movies of the year. Um, I would say best. Yeah, yeah, maybe best. And that's very typical. But it was nice to see at least Olivia Coleman, who gave just the most (laughs) rip-roaring, vanity-free, fearless, hilarious, great performance. And that she actually won was just staggering. Because, of course, that was a setup for for Glenn Close. Glenn Close has been collecting awards all over the map. She won the Golden Globe. She won the Independent Spirit Award. Um, (laughs) She's she's been, and it's clearly a cumulative career achievement kind of thing for people who like like that sort of Glenn Close thing, which doesn't include me. and she, you just see, she even dressed in an all gold column dress, which looked suspiciously like the Oscar. And you're like, Ooh. oh, she's, she's sure she's got this thing. And then Olivia Coleman got it. It was fabulous. She still seems Olivia Coleman, daffy as hell, but like a recognizable human being. So that was very, very unusual um, to enjoy a moment yeah. at the Oscars. Yeah. Well, speaking of Glenn Close, did you watch The, the Wife? No, I heard about it, though. I've been hearing it's just yeah, I, I somehow in a weird accent. Accident. I did watch. I did oh watch my it. God. I partially like, forwarded it. <laughs> Probably oh, third tell, of it. Tell. It's um. Yeah. It's uh, it's somehow really, really. It's like a weird bad film. Oh. But I guess it's like Oscar worthy. Very mediocre. Very. Uh, I mean, I read that there's one scene where she supposedly mm-hmm. finally, you know, rebels against her the husband, her oppressive husband that's supposed to be the one that won her the Oscar. And a friend of mine saw mm-hmm. it and said, "It's so mild that she's just like." <laughs> I'm like, you mean it wasn't like Hedda Gobbler, you know, 
or Nora in a doll's house slamming no, the door, no. the door slam heard around the world. And she's like, oh, believe me, nothing like. Yeah. So it sounds like very mild Hallmark movie kind of stuff, practically, except with an unhappy ending. Yeah. I don't know. It's like an extremely heavy handed film about the topic that's clearly now. I mean, yeah. it should be all over the place about the like hidden women behind man creators or so-called fake creators. Yeah. But somehow Glenn Close, I, okay, one little thing about besides that the movie is bad. Glenn Close is not a very fitting woman for that role because she exudes such like confidence and like strength, mm. power, you know, how Glenn Glows is. She's kind of mean. Yeah, Cruella de Vil, it, that's how all... She's Cruella de Vil, that's, that's Glenn Glows. And, <laughs> and she's perfect as Cruella. But here, it just doesn't make any sense that it, like a Cruella could have it supposedly endured all that for uh-huh. some reason. It is odd it's, casting. Uh, it just, yeah. It's like very odd casting, even if you wanted to stick with that line, mm. which is as weird as it is. But yeah, so it's... And she said about it very solemnly. You know, the whole key to that performance was my coming to understand what makes her stay. And I'm just like, oh, I hate this shit. What makes her stay? <laughs> what? <makes> well, her- <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, there was a whole line, the gist of the film, like why the woman like went this route and published under her yeah. husband's name. Basically that the um, older woman writer at some point tells this young, Glenn Glows, it's not played by her, a younger woman, mm-hmm. that she should, shouldn't write because she won't be read and her book's going to be in some kind of really dusty part of the library. Right. And then she realizes that it's not about that someone like stops her from writing. It's just that she wants to have the audience and to get the audience, you know, <laughs> man's, she needs like the man's she name. But instead man. of like, yeah, but it's not even clear. I guess take take the moniker or something. Take the man's name and you know hide under. You know, it doesn't have to be your literal husband. Yeah, I hmm. uh, larg. <laughs> it anyway, makes it's, all it's the sense in the world. It was a great moment that she lost. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very let's happy. just say that. Okay. <laughs> and okay, back to Karan, who did win yeah. three awards, which is insane. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, Okay, I one one thing I was surprised that so since he was nominated for the like the best picture he didn't win but he did win best foreign picture best foreign film yeah right and I was trying to see who were the contenders before that yeah. and um, you know I I was really thinking that the other the German film I did get to watch I thought that will win 100% because it's it's called Never Look Away mm-hmm. um, it's directed by Florian uh, what's his name he's a count, German count Florian Henkel von Donnersmark oh, and God. Uh, okay. that's the <laughs> that's the director who made um, what is it maybe over 10 years ago or more he made Life of Others okay oh right but now it's his brand new film and I thought it would be like a fitting Oscar like winner because mm-hmm. it's basically just about an artist turns out it actually based on Gerhard Richard's life story oh. and Gerhard Richard actually came out like hating on this film but, oh, wow. but so it's Gerhard Richard's story it's uh, an artist um, a young artist in Dresden uh-huh who has to work uh, first under sort of like he grows up under the Nazi and then he mm-hmm. lives under the communists in the kind of East Germany and he has to embrace and work in the socialist realist style and, mm-hmm. and he sort of hates it but he doesn't really know why he's never been outside mm-hmm. of Dresden and then he leaves sort of defects as they mm-hmm. say to the West and becomes tries to become conceptual artist right. and eventually finds his style as a photorealist, right? That's what Gerhard Richard actually exactly 
his way. That's mm-hmm. what he did. And I mean, it's very like ban- in a banal way, beautifully shot and extremely mediocre in all the other ways and, and <laughs> very laughable and overly serious yeah. because what it tries to say, which is extremely simple and kind of, I would say, simplified, mm-hmm. that basically the artist just needs to be given freedom. You know, <laughs> really? To- well, that is a daring take. <laughs> That's a daring take. So the whole idea, and, and I, I would think like academies should like that, uh, right? Yeah. That the Nazis were horrible. Yeah, basically, that's always in short, the message is Nazis are horrible. Communists are equally as horrible <laughs> in their course, own way. No, no better than Nazis. <laughs> and then they sort of, in the Western Germany, are, you know, this is the way to go. <laughs> Wow, and it didn't win? You're right. That should have been a shoe This is the winner. I mean, this is the winner. Oh, my God. Except that they do love Quran. Quran is like their favorite now. And he just has, he's he's sort of good looking, sort of suave. You know, he's got all these, He's it's kind of a way to represent people of color. This is your go-to dude. Guillermo del Toro isn't nearly as pretty a figure to put, to put up front as your person. So, but yeah, that's perfect. That's a perfect Hollywood film you just described. Wow. Yeah. Sort of like Pixar yeah. when the shorts film category came up and what was it called bow you know the name of the pixar wow. short you're like well that's gonna win because it's the pixar short and of course it won you know <laughs> so they, you know when they did documentary and won't you be my neighbor the fred rogers mm-hmm. you know tribute doc comes up and you're like well that's gonna win you know it's just like betting the betting pools that they'd always get going were always so funny because it's like well but who isn't gonna guess there's hardly ever an olivia <laughs> coleman upset almost never it's almost some kind of mediocre very predictable stuff yeah what's the most yeah bland uh the most familiar what's already pre-approved what's actually the yeah the general picture what's what's the Academy. What's the Oscars film? Well, they want to feel like there's something, something noble going on. So it's got to be, it's got to be well made, but in a non-threatening way. So there'll just be a kind of, kind of. It, it does it appear nice? And <laughs> it's very Disney values, actually. Is it kind of sanitized? Um, pleasant. There's glossy nothing picture. Glossy, very glossy. Usually. Yes, high production values. Nothing too spiky. But is it causey somehow? Does it represent a really toothless, you know, quote unquote, good cause that everyone, everyone in Hollywood is now ascribing to? Which means it's a total, you know, centrist, um, kind of liberal, um, thing that they almost always vote that way. And you could see why Academy voters would barely need to, you know, they just need to read a couple of synopses and they can know which <laughs> which is the right. <laughs> right way to vote you know so pixar always wins even though especially by you know at one point it was exciting when they first started but even then it was the clear inheritor of the disney style which goes all the way back to you know, uh, uh what the 20s 30s when disney is perfecting what's going to be a recognized you know bland waspy values um you know illusion of life but you know never spilling over into anything too realistic the cleanest nature scenes you've ever seen (laughs) you know everything's pretty everything's upbeat everything's affirmative at least as far as you know white supremacist america um so you know pixar just rolls right out of that and there's no surprise at all that they've always kept maintained their tie to disney because they they want to inherit the disney mantle and so we just keep handing the awards to these the same type of film even though it's different filmmakers nominally they all have to conform to the Pixar style what what would you say like the films like the most horrific Oscar uh, favorite films that you 
that you remember. Oh that, my like, god, it's it's so hard. Horrified you. Because <laughs> for me, it's like Curious J. Like what is it? The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. It's like really shattering. Oh yeah, yeah my that's world. a shatteringly <laughs> horrifying experience. And why? Why? I'm trying. I was trying to remember. You mentioned that earlier. Like why was yeah. that so bad? That just killed me. That one. <gasps> it was really something. I think it, it was because it, it was doing that nightmarish <laughs> tour through American history, and you had to hit everything. Like now it's World War Two, and now. <laughs> Meet the Beatles, and now, and yeah, while he's Forrest what? Gump kind of thing. Yeah, it's very Forrest but, Gump. But, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. while he's aging backwards and she's aging forward, and, and I don't know some dumb thing like this. But yeah, it's like they're just living through you know these these kind of uh, the most generically represented aspects of each era. But all for what? You know, what's the typical message? Is love? Love is eternal, and blah, whatever. I don't even know. Um, but yeah, the whole. The whole, and also the whole what inadvertently grotesque quality of what is actually this kind of bland um, um, view of both love and America, you know, with the the the, the kind of wizened little baby who's when when Benjamin Button is at his oldest, he's this wrinkled up, ossified looking baby. <laughs> if it was cradle. a comedy, that it actually would be pretty good. Yeah, like, I mean, it was exactly. pretty funny, but it didn't have the right tone. No, to sort of instead slow, glutinous reverent all of the things that are usually spell something bad in America uh, almost always in American films certainly anyway yeah, but, you know while they're like garbage, you know, yeah. dances with wolves beats uh, what did it be Goodfellas right in 1990 mm-hmm. that's you know poor, poor Martin Scorsese yeah, he lost. Um, Ordinary no. People beats Raging Bull in 1980, and in 1990, uh, it's Dances with Wolves. And I think having Kevin Costner's, you know, bland, the most bland revisionist uh, film about the West, which is trying to take the side of, you know, the Native Americans. In this case, I think he's living with the Sioux. But of course, in his representation, the Sioux are not a warlike people. And you're like, so you, in fact, didn't even Wikipedia <laughs> look up the Sioux, who were like famous warlike your nation um yeah so they have to be you know the ultimate tree hugging um nicey nice super um revere the earth kind of um um just just as fake a noble savage version of the native american as the old demonized version it just you know you just flip the coin and get the noble savage and so that though you know because it's again Oh, what a good cause. He's taking seriously the ploy to the Native American. Of course, he gets the stupid fucking award. Uh, and Goodfellas, you know, a total masterpiece doesn't. So that that's a good example of a travesty. What about you? Any others besides Benjamin Button? I can't think of any. Besides Benjamin Button, I can't. I actually, I can't. That that is that is, I think, the worst because it was also nominated for something like twelve Oscars and probably won half of them or something. Yeah. And and that and that never look away. The the German film I was talking about earlier yeah, yeah. that just has a similar quality, and I'm surprised it got nothing. But but what I wanted to say because um, while we we're talking, I was thinking about it back in the day when it was like a young cinephile in mm-hmm. Moscow. There was this list um, that was spread spread around I think it's like 100 great films of all times mm-hmm. and it was back in the days and probably now it's slightly changed but I realized that when you look up those films it's like rarely 
actually Oscar winners or even oh, no. not necessarily Oscar nominators. So uh, there's like a parallel. It's 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 kind of clear mm. if you start looking into it that it's these are not the great films, even by not just by our standards. Oh no, mine, absolutely. But, <laughs> but film history or any. Oh, and if you just Google worst best picture film ever made, mm-hmm. you come up with like a hundred sites automatically, and it's hilarious, hilarious reading. And there's just like so many that are just the very very worst. And Green Book is an in, in instant perfect example but everybody immediately is like yep that's gonna be on the list okay but what made me think is it something about then the kind of the european versus the american tradition because i'm not saying that great mm. they're great american films that never get oscars and that's the whole point uh-huh. so they're not going to be on this on this list and they might be on that other uh, real great films list mm-hmm. but i don't know what's what's the deal with this like duality basically everyone outside of this oscar shit show accepts the reality that this is almost like definition of not being a truly good <laughs> yeah. like a truly good film you i know? think it's because again it's- we we mistake we actually believe the pr we believe that the academy of motion pictures arts and sciences is all about the media, the a serious, you know, reverence for the medium itself and for great filmmaking. And that's not what they are about. That's not what no. it's ever been about. And so that's why we keep getting confused. But it's because what there's wasn't all, about. Yeah. well, if you go into the <laughs> history of the thing, um, there's a great account of it actually in Vanity Fair of all unlikely places by David Thompson who's a film critic um, and a longtime writer about um, film, um, wrote a famous tome called The New Biogra- Biographical History of um, what is it, American Film, I think it is um, and he gives this great account of the of the impetus behind creating the Academy um, and it's basically that Louis B. Mayer back in 1926 or so decides he's the head of MGM Studios, which is perhaps the most powerful of the stu- of the major studios um, of the great studio era in Hollywood. And he decides he wants a enormous palatial beach, beach house in Santa Monica <laughs> to just cement his new status, wealth, <laughs> prestige and all the stuff. And he wants it built immediately. So he decides he's going to use studio labor. And, but then he is reminded by his assistant or somebody, um, you know, those guys are unionizing. So all those kind of typical crew members like carpenters and painters and electricians and all those guys, they are now members of a new organization, um, uh, which is what is the, the proper name? International Alliance of Theatrical um, Stage Employees or IATSE is often referred to. So they have just formed this union. So he's like, you know, you you, you can't use all, all these guys because you want them to work triple shifts and you'd never be able to afford it. It would cost you such a, for- a fortune. Even you can't afford it. So they said, use just key crew people and then we'll hire non-union labor to do all, all the rest. And this gets Mayor thinking. He's like, wait a minute. What happens if everybody unionizes, especially what they call talent, which is directors, screenwriters, actors? What if they start getting this union bug? That's really going to cut into the profits and it's going to cut into my beach house money. And we don't want that. So he he comes up with this idea. What if we invent an organization that seems to represent 
people who work in Hollywood and their interests, like it could manage labor disputes and things like that. It won't. It'll really mainly represent the studios because we're creating it. And it can also be turned into something that'll be a huge promotional and PR um, organization dedicated to making Hollywood look good to America and the world. Um, and that's that's the, the beginning um, of creating the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which, as, as Thompson points out, is it just a genius name because, and this is a quote, because it made you think the Academy had always been there, arranged by God and Harvard and Albert Einstein. Um, and indeed, if you read, if you again, if you Google them and try to read the history of the Academy, uh, of the Academy, that's exactly the accounts that come up. They're super reverent. It's like just somehow it appeared in the in the mid to late 20s and began doing its good work since just amazingly God, it's ominous. Oh, it is. It's so and it's so typical of Hollywood history where, you know, you usually read the cleaned up version and they everyone. So many of the, the kind of mainstream accounts try to crush um, the actual labor history of Hollywood, which is as ugly as it is anywhere in America or, or most of the world. So then there's another, you know, there's a great academic article on what happens in the next 10 years where, where ironically, um, because the depression hits, a mayor, a mayor's attempt to stop um, um, the creation of more unions, in fact, do, it does nothing to create them. It helps create more unions because when the depression hits, um, there's an immediate move on the part of the studios to slash the salary of all the, everybody working in pictures basically really cruelly slashed them and this is where people working in Hollywood realize that uh, the Academy is actually not working on their behalf in any way whatsoever and you start getting unions formed in the form of guilds Screen Actors Guild Writers Guild Directors Guild all get formed um, in the early to mid 30s um, to be actual function as actual unions and the biggest irony of all is the Academy Award show which of course hadn't wasn't televised till 1953, but radio would record it. It was a big dinner. The press covered it slavishly, and Oscar-winning films would uh, would be re-released and make a lot more money for the studios. Um, so they loved the awards from the beginning. They were a big success. Um, but you could use the, the, the canny people who are the head of these unions start to realize you can use the the show itself as a bargaining chip. You can basically say we will boycott. All of us stars <laughs> are not going. All of the directors are not attending. We will refuse the awards. We will not appear at the show. We will not take the awards. So all of that good publicity, that's one of the main reasons you want the Academy in the first place, is going to be turned into bad, to bad um, publicity. You know, Frank Capra, of all people, who we tend to think of as a, uh, um, a total conservative director, was a huge <laughs> labor firebrand in the 1930s. And he was the one who, came, who engineered one of the biggest boycotts that got the Directors Guild everything they were asking for from um, the studio heads. So that's the I, kind of the, uh, you know, just part of the ironic history um, of the Academy Awards is it's all completely tangled up in, in attempts at union crushing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's the sad, <laughs> ignoble history of the institution. Yeah, I feel it's like should be a good book written about it and, and it's given to every, I don't know. And, and at least, and, <laughs> from student and that should be much more high profile because, you know. Yeah, that's, what, that's what I mean. And, and that Vanity Fair article is kind of surprising, right? Yeah, the last the place you'd expect thing. to find that article. It's yeah. Vanity Fair. Um, but it was thrilling to read it because there's all those blank spots of, of, of in history. Whenever you look at it, you always find yourself going, wait a minute, how is this supposed to, <laughs> why is this here? Because especially if you pay attention to the Academy Award, 
awards over the years, there's always been something bizarre about the whole the whole spectacle and the whole way a, an institution that's supposed to be all about the greatness of cinema and the whole deal about the voting was it was supposed to be vote the voting was supposed to be by your peers. So, you know, editors voting for best editor mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of thing. So the, the people who really know, who really do it and therefore really know and would be serious about it would be voting. And you'd think that would lead to, well, really, they'd recognize the really great work. And yet year after year after year, I mean, the most mockable <laughs> films uh, often are the ones that win the big Academy Awards. So it's just like how to reconcile how, why, how and why that's going on. It's, I think there's just such cynicism at the, at the heart of it, at the, at the beginning of from the very beginning. Yeah. Have you heard about this book? I'm, I've just been thinking this union busting stories are obviously <laughs> extremely cynical and horrific. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a book about the history of Hollywood called, um, what is it, Empire of Their Own. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of it? I don't think I have. Just about no, the biggest like, producers and heads of Hollywood studios mm-hmm. um, that, that they first created were basically Russian or Russian Empire Jews from little like shtetls yep. yeah, on the outskirts of Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. And they could more or less, I mean, it depends. Some of them could have been potentially pretty left wing when they moved. They were working class. Mm-hmm. It just I'm thinking about the politics of it all because most of them came from a very humble and sometimes the left-wing tradition that right. clearly probably later was quickly abandoned but yet abandoned in, in reality but yet in the in the Hollywood myth making in the movies it's still sometimes you can you can kind of see it, see it in a way right it's very confounding because yeah yeah the, the the majority anyway of the studio heads very famously yeah are are, are wind up like, getting into films because they were considered a disreputable <laughs> up-and-coming yeah, business completely. and that was what mm-hmm. was available you only had certain businesses that were available to you and so it was people who were like in the glove selling trade and just mm-hmm. people who were working really hard scrabble jobs often they were Im- impoverished immigrants and then they clawed their way up and pr- promptly turn around and publicly embraced with all their might all the wasp values they possibly could of course they did live in terror that 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 the public was going to turn especially in rocky times like the 20s where Uh people were starting to really despise hollywood values because of all the hollywood scandals that were going on and they were terrified like uh, that suddenly somebody was going to point the finger and say well no wonder a bunch of jews are running hollywood (laughs) at least because so many studio not all but so many of the studio heads happened to be um Mm -hmm. that, that of course they there would be an even bigger show of conforming to, um, frankly, the worst of, of American <laughs> American values. And you just even studios, they have huge ironies like, you know, the Warner Brothers, um, you know, and they became famous for their very gritty, very realistic um, films, gangster films, films about prostitutes, mm-hmm. filming really they, like they were the very really opposite of the, the ultra glossy MGM musicals and melodrops and stuff. Um, so they were very kind of working class in outlook, especially in the 1930s and their films kind of became prized by a lot of people for that reason. Um, but they drove their their actors even all the way up to the star level to, to the point mm-hmm. of collapse. The the, the first fights um, for on behalf of actors to get you know, rights to better scripts, better pay, rest between films. They were just lashed from one film to the next to the next. Um, uh, we're, we're by top 
Warner Brothers stars because even their contracts were so draconian and onerous and horrible. Um, so people like Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland and James Cagney, all top Warner stars, were people leading the fight against the bosses who were just absolute slave drivers. It's really an odd thing to read about <laughs> top stars who, of course, in part live very pampered lives but literally are not allowed to sleep <laughs> they're just like nope you're due over on stage four for, for the other movie you're shooting today yeah. you know really horrendous conditions of work it's interesting but now it's like the tables turned right because they there's so much publicity and they make so much money so they they oh yeah but it's can. because of those actors finally they break the, mm -hmm. the 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 hold of the really draconian contracts Shadow slavery. and that's the <laughs> beginning of the turnaround for stars they start getting becoming freelancers they start writing their own ticket they start basically using the fact that they know they're the big main draw for people mm -hmm. um, and yeah it's out yeah. of that that you start the steady climb of it's actually Louis B. Mayer's nightmare <laughs> actors mm -hmm. and who become stars discover wow we get we are, we're going to get a huge chunk of not just the net profits but the gross profits and that's ex one of the main things he was he was trying to stop he's just like we got to make sure none of these people ever clue in the talent. to the, the, the quote unquote talent ever figure out that they might have any power in this situation yeah, yeah god yeah that's it's pretty dark <laughs> yeah. It's a rough history for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I don't know what's going to be next year. I know. How, I know. How low? How, how long low can this can go on? How, how long can this go? Wait, did you? I I, I might have read it in the article you sent me mm. that this year, despite that people clearly still watching all mm -hmm. over the world, but it's the lowest. Oh yeah. Some kind of every year since seventy something. Every year it drops and drops and drops like a stone. The viewership, in other words, right. it used to be yeah. quite quite high. You know, just, I forget. You know, around the world. World viewership was was and it was one of those again it was up to was up through a certain point i don't know when even 80s even maybe into the early 90s it was it was one of those event things that you really could could hold people to that every year that was one of the things that whole families would watch or whole groups of friends or whatever and oscar parties started <laughs> yeah and all that stuff that that you could rely on people tuning in and it's just gotten steadily less and less and less because you know as people point out i can find out all the highlights the next day why would i sit through this absolutely punishing um i can watch the the, the you know the red carpet crawl to see the <laughs> see the outfits um True. even after the fact I, I there's no reason to sit there and it's just it's a nauseating evening of kind of smugness and incompetence the show is always <laughs> terrible it's always just terrible in different ways and nobody in hollywood Hollywood can speak. There's almost never anyone who says anything with their one minute or two minutes or whatever they get, <laughs> not much, um, of time um, where you've got, you know, a, a very large international audience <laughs> listening to you and they just, everyone says so, but it's really true. They just, even Spike Lee is, is reading from a hunk of crumpled <laughs> yellow legal paper, not being able to read his own writing, apparently just stumbling yeah. and tripping and falling through. And you're just like, how hard it fucking is it to memorize a tiny wee little speech? These are people who memorize, you know, the actors memorize lines all their lives. They all do PR all the time. How hard they have to do those huge huge punishing press junkets where you talk to like sure. 75 interviewers in a row. How hard is it? 
to remember, you know, a paragraph long speech, but they can't do it. They just can't do it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the, the Spike Lee bit was weird. You know, it made me wonder throughout Oscar's history, mm-hmm. were there any radicals who would shun it? Like if they were nominated in whatever capacity it was. Yeah. And directors, the, in the, writers in the 30s, and not show up. Oh, uh, yeah. In the 30s article I was reading. I mean, you know, there's famous ones. The, the, the refusal of Marlon Brando to accept his award for what was a godfather. And he mm-hmm. um, instead sent a Native American woman to to, you know, um, you know, make a short speech about, you know, the uh, heinous treatment of Native Americans in the entire history of the United States. And he refused the Oscar. And that became this huge uh, point of notoriety that, frankly, just, you know, uh, rebounded against him and gave him a big reputation for being nuts for many, many years. But, you know, it was being what's great about the the article I mentioned, it's uh, that's about um, the way the Academy Award show was being used through the 30s as a as a bargaining chip. It's by Monica Sandler of UCLA. It's called PR and Politics at Hollywood's Biggest Night, the Academy Awards and Unionization, 1929 to 1939, is, yeah, that people would, again, basically say, directors are not going to turn up. um, We will not uh, accept these awards. So Dudley Nichols, for example, wins Best Director for The Informer. I forget which year it is, late 30s. Um, And he refuses... um, his Oscar to accept his Oscar because he says basically this this entity the Academy was formed to crush unions I'm a member of the directors union screen uh, directors guild we've been fighting you on all of these things you're refusing to give us anything that we ask for and it would be hypocritical to accept my reward so I refuse to accept it so you you had it's really a, a thrilling article to read because you see people who really have an extraordinary consciousness about labor rights. And it, it's a great example, too, because there's a lot about the movements the government was making under under um, FDR to encourage. Um, there was legislation, incur- you know, basically saying, in, you know, um, empowering collective bargaining, empowering in unions. Huge numbers of unions were created in the early to mid 30s um, and that it seems to have had a huge effect on people's attitudes, that they were really up and ready ready to fight in a way that you just can't imagine now. I mean, when was the last time you heard about, you know, occasionally there's obviously there's a union um, fight, but it tends not to bleed over into the Academy Awards at all. I can't remember when's the last time anyone tried to to hold the show hostage in that way. <laughs> I'm blanking. Is there... Sorry. That would be great, though. Wouldn't it? Someone should. Isn't it an obvious <laughs> thing be. for like the Screenwriters Guild to do or something? Yeah. You know, just turn it. I don't know turn it to your own your own advantage but i don't know they're all like too psychophantic usually it's just no one does anything and well in any kind of class struggle yeah. labor struggle really died <laughs> it just died out in like the yeah. early early mid 80s it was just killed in everyone's <laughs> well, consciousness and now it's identity politics which is again oscars is very much in line with clearly without like calling it that oh absolutely the way it's all presented that's where you get all the rounds of applause and that's again why the boots riley speech was so telling is he really Mm -hmm. was just saying it's it's you're you're all stuck in one groove that you've been stuck in um you know quote unquote diversity um um, a certain amount of very light very me too kind of um um feminism pussy hat kind of feminism whatever you'd call it now (laughs) liberal feminism and there is no such thing as as class struggle and you refuse to acknowledge it and it doesn't appear in films and you know that that's why that speech was 
didn't appear to be very well received by the audience. And it's because it just sounds like someone yeah. talking from who's an alien come down or something. It's you could just it's almost like no one's heard that for so long. They don't know what to do with it. And it seems vaguely threatening even. Well, because in the end, all the people sitting there, they're like a one class and they do not want to acknowledge well, exactly. that. This is a direct attack. Of, there is a divide. Who they yeah, and who they are and how maybe they're not the good ones here. Maybe they're not the good guys mm-hmm. um, because they can always claim, well, like sort of George Clooney, you know, making a series of films and he'd be keep coming out and saying, I'm proud of Hollywood and I'm proud of being a liberal because we're responsible for all these great gains. Um, and, you know, naming, you know, all the civil rights, all that stuff, you know, of course, some of it's true, but. It's also, you know, that's the limit of it. That's where you stake your claim and your pride because you don't want to get into what it means to be multimillionaires um, sitting there wearing, you know, again, who knows how many tens of thousands worth of of diamonds and gowns and furs and everything else um, in this ridiculous display of elitism. All of a sudden, there's no way to make you look like you're you're the, the heroic ones in the story. True. You know, I, I wonder if we should at least cover, or you should cover briefly since we started talking about Booth Riley and Independent Spirit Awards, how that award that was happened a day before, right? Yeah, the day um, before. Whether it was any different, because it's been going for decades as well, right? Oh, yeah, the Independent Spirit Awards. It's a little weird watching it. It's the day before, and you can tell that there's many of the same people are at one, is, are at the other, not only because they've been nominated, it's a surprising number of awards are overlap um, awards, which you wouldn't think would happen very often, but does. Because um, for one thing, because as we've talked about in an earlier episode, what is independent film anyway? The line has become so absolutely blurred as the studios, the big conglomerates got more and more involved in poaching talent, in investing in independent films, stars you know, are in so-called independent films. There's no clear definition. Um, so there's a lot of crossover that way, but a lot of presenters who show up at one show show up at the other. So usually you're like, oh, there's Javier Bardem again. He was he was there last night. You know, they're they're clearly just showing up for the weekend. And if you read Carrie Fisher's um, one of her many bios, she talks about the award season and people just show they fly in. <laughs> um, and get their clothes and just, you know, it's going to be partying. You're going to party. She talks about her her great friend partying so hard. He, he basically he basically dies in her bed and she wakes up next to her friend who's overdeed overnight and came into town for the for the award um, parties. Um, so there's that quality of like there's an odd. And of course, the show, the Indi- Independent Spirit Award show clearly is completely modeled on the Academy Awards. So even if there's a kind of ironic, you know, amused quality of, of acknowledging that. So, you know, Aubrey Plaza, whose specialty is ironic, <laughs> deadpan, it was the host. And, and she's constantly, you know, mocking and, and referring to herself in, in, you know, kind of mock grandiose terms as the, in, in her hosting um, role. And she was kind of funny. Um, you know, they, they constantly refer to the fact in the show that they're, they're just in a, in a tent on the beach at Santa Monica. And the whole, the whole suggestion is, well, this is, this shows somehow our, our, our authentic independence and stuff but it's got and they keep showing aerial shots of it in the show to assure you it really is a tent well it's the biggest fucking tent in the world and it holds a huge auditorium like space with a gigantic stage and and all the all the trapping so you if you didn't keep getting told it's a tent 
you'd never know. There's an there's a football field's length of fancy tables where famous people are sitting. It's so much like the other award show that you're just like, aren't you uncomfortable? And of course, tons and there's a few people who refuse to dress up, but most of them are dressed to the nines. So it's just like, ah, kind of same diff in a way that I don't know what they should do. You don't expect them, obviously, to show all show up in you know shorts and sandals, but there's just something odd about it. Like the Independent Spirit Awards is just modeled on the Academy Awards. There was a funny thing that John Walters was kind of part of that oh, right, show, yeah. right? He was in the, what do you call they, it? Yeah, he was guest directing, supposedly. That was yeah. the big stunt that they spent the whole budget flying in. <laughs> Um, John Waters to be, you know, of course, and he did they. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, didn't. Yeah, obviously, probably a joke that they, of course, they didn't need to because he was in some mock-up, you know, back room um, <laughs> in the booth, <laughs> calling him. But that was that did seem pretty edgy, combining it with Audrey Plaza. I mean, they're obviously all at this point Hollywood insiders, but it, well, I th- and it, I think it, John it did, Waters did have a static is typically. Edge. I think he's done the MC job before, and I think he's kind of practically oh. the, a kind of. You know, everybody's favorite uncle figure at the Independent Spirit Awards, because, yeah, if Waters can represent can represent independent film perfectly, he's he's a great gesture toward authenticity because he really started out making his films for no money, comes out through the midnight movie circus circuit, you know, uh, gets embraced as a cult favorite before he ever gets any mainstream traction. It's years and years and years before, of course, he's he's making, you know, uh, what crybaby and hairspray and stuff like that. Um, like Pink Flamingo. Yeah, his films are notorious as, as, you know, films that are a challenge to watch. And uh, exactly, that kind of thing. So he's a great way to keep, to really insist on your indie film cred is to have John Waters there kind of blessing the proceedings. Yeah. Well, um, is it a wrap? <laughs> I think it Did might be. But it's hard. <laughs> I think it's worth saying it's really hard to talk about. I mean, I've been kind of dreading this show because it's, and, and yeah. then, well, obviously the show, but 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 the episode, I mean, because it's it's everybody every year who does anything with film is expected to talk about this. And it's so boring. And every year you just see people struggling, you know, who have to write about it and everything. They're just struggling to find any angle, any way to talk about it because it's, it's just in many ways fundamentally not interesting except it's been so insti- mm. institutionalized it has real power in the world. It still has a big effect even if, you know, audiences are waning and everything else. The films all get re-released, careers are made or damaged, all sorts of, there's all sorts of consequences. So you feel like you have to talk about it but it's so fucking boring. Oh my God. It's almost never well, anything interesting is happening in film anyway go ahead but but it's but culturally it can be interesting because it shows what's the where the cult the mainstream culture at that particular year so i guess you can you as especially as a film critic can can sort of enjoy ripping those movies apart that's true it's a little bit but though it almost seems like the larger cultural you know the larger culture that's reflected by the show stays pretty consistent. You'd have to go back to like the seventies, <laughs> um, I think, where where again you had people doing protest things like oh, I remember Vanessa Redgrave. Um, she accepted the award, I believe, and I forget what for, but she made a whole speech on behalf of um, of the Palestinians at a time when mm-hmm. you that in America she was immediately labeled a complete crazy woman and there was no other explanation it was hugely hugely controversial um so there was a period where 
more daring stuff could have, you could actually have a streaker run through <laughs> um, <laughs> through across the stage at the Oscar. You, you could have somebody do something genuinely wacky or say something crazy or it's a lot more tamped down in recent years. Um, so and, and again, broad strokes, it tends to represent the values that the Hollywood film and the, the, the American film industry has always been trying to represent. And it gets, you know, the edges change a little bit year to year but otherwise it stays appallingly the same <laughs> like without without questioning any of the basics um which you know it's not set up to do it's set up to you know cover over any questioning of the basics so as you say pep to what is it pep to abysmal color of the, no, dresses. the dresses no helen that, mirren came of- out in this kind of i don't know what the hell she was wearing but it was the most appallingly vivid <laughs> eye-hurting shade of of <laughs> Yeah. Pinkish red next to what's the guy's name who just started Aquaman? I'm forgetting his name. He's Ooh, a new, uh, I can't. Uh, I know who you're Jason, talking about, but I can't remember his name. his name. Anyway, and he's in this dusty, mm. pale, brownish pink velvet tux. And together, it was the most nauseating image I've ever seen. And they did that terrible band, attempted banter between the two because everyone wants to think all the Hollywood insiders know each other, which I'm afraid <laughs> might actually be the case. They all actually, again, are yeah. in the same club. And it, the whole thing. Yeah, but what I want to say, it's like it's it's not just the color of dresses. It's peptivismal for, I don't know, for, for, for the humanity. Yes. <laughs> right. For... It tries to numb you somehow. Yeah. And, and you feel like, <laughs> right. yes, you're being asked to acquiesce and something that you don't mm-hmm. just by watching just <laughs> just by watching <laughs> yeah it's barely it's hard to digest yeah i don't know it's just it's pretty horrific but you know one film i just realized forgot to we forgot to talk mm. about or i forgot to ask you about if because uh, it did win i think independent spirit awards mm-hmm. and the oscars i don't remember uh the um bill street could bill talk, street could talk I say it yeah. Right? yeah it won independent spirit award best picture and wasn't even not wait a minute was it? It was. It was shut out. It wasn't even nominated, I believe, in the Academy Award. That was one of the scandalous things. I think that's right. It certainly didn't win. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Because I. Okay. Because I, I thought it was probably nominated. Yeah. That's right. Barry Jenkins. Did you like that? Did you like that film? You know, that's a hard one because you know it's based on a James Baldwin novel. So of course it's yeah. You know, you feel one feels reverent because Baldwin's a great American and great American writer. Both. Um. It's beautifully made. It's almost like, to me, I just, uh, I read the book and uh, what perplexed me was the extent to which Barry Jenkins makes a very soft, beautiful, kind of cleaned up version. Um, There's much less of what's harrowing in Baldwin's novel. There's much less of even what's sexually very bold and edgy and you know deliberately meant to put you right on the edge and that's all taken out too and there's so much that's cleaned up and made it's a a number of critics pointed out it's such a weirdly pretty 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 distractingly pretty film the color the color coordination then in that film is it's crazy it's like crazy levels it's it's at 1950s douglas circ levels of color of color scheme that it's it become for me anyway. It became distracting to try to figure out why. What is he doing? Why? Why is he taking this approach to this material when it seems like a, a mismatch? And I wound up arguing. I think he is doing a circ. He's trying to make a kind of uncomfortable clash between the beauty of the images and the ugliness of the social reality 
That's that's the, that's hmm. the expl- explanation I came up with, but I'm not really satisfied mm-hmm. by it because I, I didn't. So it didn't work. I didn't find didn't the film satisfying. Yeah. It has again because M- Moonlight was somewhat similar, extremely pretty mm-hmm. and very brutal. Supposed, yeah, supposed to it be seems like a, a stylistic approach that he's adopted, and and yeah, I don't know. I I just found that distracting to the point that, but it's still you had to say it's a very well made play. Blah blah. blah. I mean play and not even a play it's a movie you know i just looked up so he was nominated, he was nominated. for best adapted screenplay oh, that's right he was he didn't win but he didn't win but he was nominated so it's not like they completely he was, lost it was still sh- yeah. people were still shocked that it didn't yeah. get a best picture nomination anyway uh, well weird. well green book that's exactly. unbeatable he's just like what you can know you know at least if bill street could talk and again that that is there's a serious wave of new film films that are you know dealing with black experience directed by um black talent starring black talent all that seems like an interesting thing that's been happening in the last year so it got something of a little bit of a showcase um but again mm-hmm. turned into something that it seemed, I don't know. Again, where's the edge on this? It's it's, it's like the, everyone conforms Im- almost immediately to a kind of feel good. My main goal is to go drink champagne with Barbara Streisand at the governor's ball. Quality that is just odd. It's just odd. Yeah. And, but maybe that's how we all are. Everyone's really secretly, no matter where you think you stand. If you had a chance to get an Oscar and go to the governor's ball, you'd be like, "Yep." I will do anything to, to be at the governor's ball. It's sort of like, you know, finding out that Mick Jagger, you know, and, and Keith Richards all golf or whatever. And you're like, well, of course they do. You know, um, there's a public pose. That's a dirty secret. Yeah. And then everyone just wants to be rich and famous. And yeah, in the club. Well, <laughs> that's too, that's too depressing. Let's, re- let's reject that. It's, let's just say we're not watching the Oscars next year. And, and fuck that shit show. Yeah, let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> or if we do watch, we I insist on everyone being given like a vomit bucket. Yeah, exactly. We have to find a you way know. to make this material our own if we ever have to grapple with it again. Though I'm not sure we do. Why do we? It's it's no, dumb. I don't, I don't know why. We, I don't know why. Okay, so um, okay, well, I think we'll we covered I think a lot we of ground. I think we stuff here. So yeah, and we'll be back and. In two weeks with an episode on the psychos and film. Psychotic film directors. That's episode number five. So join us for that. <laughs> yeah. So that's 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 I'm the one I'm really looking know, forward there's to. There's a actually. lot to say there. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of material. Really double too yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, I think yeah we're done. So mm-hmm. thank you. Thanks, mm-hmm. Eileen. Thank you. And bye. Bye. bye.